Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast, where our mission is to elevate and inspire all mountain athletes through education and celebration. My name is Steve House, and I will be your host today, along with Alisa Clark. We are thrilled to bring another one of our coaches to the podcast, Alexa Hasman. Alexa has been coaching ultra running since 2008, holds a master's in exercise science, as well as a master's in sports psychology, along with several USCA certifications, and is an accomplished ultra runner in her own right. In this episode, we are briefly shifting gears away from the physiology of mountaineering to focus on the psychology of risk-taking and fear. The mental component of mountaineering is as important, if not more important, than the physical. As I wrote in Training for the New Alpinism, I said that it's 80% mental and 20% physical. Well, today, Alexa is here to help you to perform your mental best. Thanks for joining us today, Alexa. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think we've been looking forward to this episode for a while. I think it's going to be great to have you on. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about all things risk-taking and fear. Woohoo! Um, so before we dig into our main topics of mental preparation, overcoming fear, dealing with doubt, and the psychology of risk-taking, um, I'd love to hear more about your background, Alexa, and then what drew you into focusing on the mind of an athlete? Yeah, that's a great question. So I grew up around psychology. My mom is a therapist, so it was always a discussion in our household and something that always fascinated me. When I went to college, I got a bachelor's in psychology, um, knowing I wanted to work with athletes, um, but not knowing how to exactly tie that in quite yet. Uh, I've been coaching for a really long time. And as I started to see that the psychology aspect was just as important as the physiological aspect, I decided to go back to school and pursue learning a little bit more about that side of things and how I could help my athletes perform on the mental side as well as the physical side. So how do you <laughs> help your athletes prepare mentally? Like just run us through, like what are some of the tools in your toolbox? I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast about what physical preparation looks like. And we talk about things like setting a baseline, setting zones. Like it all seems very tangible compared to sports psychology. So. Yeah, and I think that's why sports psychology can be a little bit intimidating because there isn't this, you can't see, it doesn't show up green on your training peaks, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, it's not something that you can see physically, um, but some of the tools that we use are going to be visualization, uh, breathing techniques. Of course, it's going to be very dependent on what the athlete is dealing with, whether it's fear overcoming an injury, just preparing for a race is a big one, or preparing for a big event, anything like that, the tools are going to be a little bit different. But there's a lot of tools that we can use that are really relevant to each of the issues that they're dealing with. Yeah, that's really interesting. I would like to hear more about how you help your athletes prepare specifically for a race or a big event. What what are the sort of some of the things that you do, and I can perhaps share some of the things that I learned, at least anecdotally. 
Yeah, for for race preparation, I really like visualization, right? So really spending time focusing on visualing, visualizing the positive aspects of the race, but also the negative aspects of the race or the event, right? It's really important to visualize how am I going to tackle this situation when it's not going well, just so that we can remain calm when things do go wrong during a race or an event, right? Um, I also like to do visual preparation. So having them hang stuff around their houses on their mirrors, elevation maps with like little cues that tell them stuff like, hey, when I get to this climb, I'm going to tell myself this, or I'm going to reward myself with this. So giving little mental cues that sort of break down the race and give them something to look forward to. Those are two of my really big ones. And then breathing techniques, because there is a level of anxiety and fear going into any event. And so controlling that, I mean, it's important to have that anxiety and that fear because without it, there would be, I think the performance would be a little different. It'd be, I can't imagine going into a race, not being anxious, right? That would be odd, but it's about controlling that anxiety and controlling that fear and using it to our advantage rather than letting it sort of take away from our performance. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, mankind has such a history of this. I mean, in my readings, I remember discovering that the samurai would meditate on their own deaths in all the different ways that they might die from Harry Carey to being slain in battle to falling off a roof to dying of old age. And in alpinism, I know that there was, you know, perhaps overly so, but there was often this kind of talk around um, talking about and thinking about, you know, the things that could go wrong that could kill you. And, you know, even so far, there's a, a famous British alpinist who once wrote in one of his articles that before every big climb, you have to just write yourself off. That's, that's almost an extreme, like fatalistic viewpoint, right? Like he just has to, he had to say, no, I'm not coming back from this. And that's how, that's how he let go of his fear was by letting go of the expectation that he would actually live. Like that's one way to do it, right? <laughs> it's hard to be afraid of life after the climb if you don't believe there will be one. That's probably, you know, not a healthy, <laughs> mechanism to say the least but i think it does illustrate that people have been searching for something like this for a long time and trying to figure out where this this balance is yeah absolutely and with that a lot of the studies with fear and mountaineering talk about how with the psychology of it the mountaineers have to embrace the fear and make it sort of like their friend. And so that's a big aspect of dealing with the fear out there on the mountain is having it become more of like a part of them and creating this transformational process with the fear and using it. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that back to the point of visualizing, I think so often, well, people, I get a question a lot of the time of do you visualize and I always say yes, but probably not in the way that you think, because most people visualize finish lines or they visualize, I'm going to feel so strong on this climb. I'm going to do this so well. And 
the trick is, is that you can almost negatively affect yourself if you have only visualized everything going right, as you just touched on. And so you have to visualize, like my coach spends a lot of time where he's like, okay, you're going to spend the next week, like 15 to 20 minutes a day minimum, thinking about things going badly and how you're going to deal with them. And that was a huge game changer um, for my running because I went from visualizing the glory to visualizing the hard work and visualizing how I was going to work through what went badly. And then I was less, um, I was less surprised when it happened. And also I think something we often do is we visualize, okay, even if we're working on visualizing, um, negative thoughts, we don't visualize negative things happening until much further in the race where you're like, yeah, of course I feel badly at mile a hundred of 200 miles, but what if you feel badly at mile 20 (laughs) and that happens? Um, yeah, absolutely does. Yeah. And, and preparing for that so that when you're in that situation and that sort of panic comes over you, if you've had that background of visualizing it, you're able to calm yourself down and deal with that situation a little bit better than you would be if you went into it and you're like, hey, I'm imagining myself crossing this finish line and I'm winning and I'm doing so strong and all this stuff. Imagine exactly. Imagine mile 20 like where it's hurting and it doesn't feel good. How am I going to handle that? So that when that situation happens, because it will inevitably in mountaineering and in any sort of mountain sport, you're going to hit a low spot. How am I going to deal with that? How am I going to stay calm? And it's never going to look exactly like how you visualize it, but at least we'll give you the tools to say, I'm going to breathe. I'm going to take this one step at a time and I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to adapt to the situation. Definitely. I feel like this would be a good moment to bring ourselves back to the two main subjects, which are risk-taking and fear. And I want to come back to fear, but I think we should revisit and dive into and maybe start with risk-taking because that's that's the behavior that leads us into the fear, right? So maybe we should do this in sort of chronological order, if you will. Alexa, I would like to hear from you a little bit about what you've learned in the academic studies and work that you've done personally in your development about risk-taking behaviors in athletes. Yeah, absolutely. So risk-taking is a trait that we all inhabit, um, mountaineering and uh, extreme sports people more than others. Uh, Mountaineering obviously requires a level of risk and adventure seeking. And we found that in this uh, population, the participants in the sport usually consider this experience and the risk taking as part of a life affirming experience in a way of personal growth. And that's why mountaineering and extreme sports participants do what they do is because risk-taking is part of what helps them feel fulfilled and achieve personal growth. So that's what we're seeing in the studies is that psychologically, mountaineering people experience risk-taking as part of fulfilling sort of what they feel like they need to do. It reminds me of the Viktor Frankl quote, suffering ceases to be suffering when it finds meaning. One of my favorite books of all time, Man's Search for Meaning, that uh, perfectly sums it up. And I think anecdotally, 
I would be this, I would say something quite similar, like, you know, the, the risk taking inherent in mountaineering, you know, there's often been this conjecture, well, would it still be worthwhile if there wasn't risk involved? I was like, well, if there wasn't risk involved, it wouldn't be the activity that it is that would help us to realize personal growth. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people presume that these extreme sports and mountaineering that uh, people don't experience fear or uh, emotions like that the same. You know, there's a lot of talk about the brain activity of climbers and stuff like that being different, but that's not necessarily true. Um, I think that fear and that risk taking, or at least what the science says, is that's the why behind what we do what we do instead of it being, we don't have that fear. It's the fear is what drives us to do what we do. And that's sort of what puts puts us on that mountain, right? Is that level of fear and risk-taking. I was actually listening to a podcast the other day and it was saying that they were actually in an argument over, can it be a true adventure if there isn't some risk involved? And Someone was saying, oh, you can have an adventure in your backyard. And the other person was saying, but if there isn't a risk of falling off the monkey bars, like, is it a true adventure? Which I thought was a really interesting question um, to think about and how the mindset of it. But I'd be curious to pose this question to you, Steve, is do you feel that in some way, and this might be why the willingness to kind of overcome risk because um, you've done many trips and pursued things that people would consider quite risky or dangerous. Um, and do you feel like there's almost some kind of higher calling that this is what you're meant to do and that somehow that maybe surpasses the level of risk? Or I'd just be curious, like how you manage the risk in your mind and like, why is it worth it to you? Yeah, I would, yes, but I would reframe the question. I would say it's not a higher calling. It's just who I am. It's how I am in this world. And for me to not do these things that I've done, and I, and and honestly, like, it's also a moment in time, right? That's the other thing people have to realize. Yes, I did insanely dangerous things in my climbing career, but that was a long time ago. And like, I don't do those things anymore. And I don't have literally zero drive to do anything even remotely. Like I'm, I'm almost the other way. Like I'm, I'm becoming like the paranoid dad now like that, you know, is worried about people driving too fast on the highway. Um, so I still think that there's, I still believe that there is truly value in transformational, um, pursuit of adventure and yourself. And I think I would absolutely side with the person in the argument that believes that risk is a fundamental requirement of that. And I would also say that like, this is just how I have to show up and to, to suppress that is to suppress who I actually am. So I wouldn't call it a higher calling. It's just, hey, this is this is this is how I was. I'm, you know, I think this is actually one of the points I wanted to make today. 
I think that managing risk is very healthy in the sense that it teaches you a lot about, the mountains teach you generally a lot about who you actually are, not some imaginary version of yourself that's in a fairy tale or a superhero comic book, but who you actually are, which is incredibly powerful and incredibly strong and with incredible endurance and also somebody who like is really uncomfortable 20 miles into a 200 mile race sometimes you're all of those things and we are our flaws as well as our strengths and for a lot of us i think that it's important and transformational to come to accept our flaws and to come to Except that that's part of who we are. That's part of what makes us the way we are. And we don't have to be perfect. And we are, you know, it's, it goes back to self love, right? Like you have to be able to love yourself. And if you can't forgive yourself of your flaws, then you can't accomplish that. And if you can't accomplish that, you know, through adventuring, then, then, you know, I mean, there are surely other avenues, probably meditation, probably therapy, probably lots of other other things. But I think that it's probably one of the most widely available and probably one of the most widely used uh, ways of, you know, self-actualization, self-realization. Yeah, it's exactly goes back to that life affirming, you know, that's why people take the risks. And also, uh, one of the key personality traits that's different with people that participate in risk-taking behaviors is that they are more motivated by personal achievement rather than uh, compared to the normal population. So it's a personal inward achievement that is more motivating to them than most people, right? So it's, it's not that uh, they're not doing it for external reasons. They're doing it to learn more about themselves and figure out who they are and really understand themselves from a really deep level. That makes a lot of sense. I'd be curious to know, I've just, where does humility come into this? Because I think that there's an element of risk-taking that perhaps is perceived as defiance in a way, where you're defying limits, where you're going after in many ways i mean with what we do the question of is this is mother nature allowing us to do this you know are we pushing the limits of mother nature's uh edges too much um are we pushing our own limits too much how do you both think that humility comes into play and that kind of old mindset of conquering mountains that that used to be such an important part and, and quite frankly a part of um you know colonialism and such there's that drive and now you know how do we think of it with humility playing in i think the best way we can deal with that is knowing that we're we're mortal right like the mountain isn't going to care what's going to happen out there to us and so using that humility that we are we're just a human out there taking these risks, right? So we have to be humble knowing that in the end, the mountain sort of drives what happens. I also think it's really important to understand the difference between risk-taking and 
achieving something over risk. When you're actually taking risk, you sometimes don't succeed. You sometimes turn around because you decide this is this is too dangerous or I'm going to I think I'm going to die or my partner will die or I will get injured or my partner will get injured if I continue along this path. So, it's important to understand from an outside view but clearly from an inside view which I think most people have that this is actually a process. Like the the engaging with risk you know, I've had plenty of days where I've gone out and started to lead up a hard pitch and backed off. That's happened lots of times. And I've also had days where I didn't feel I needed to, and I, I led the pitch. And I think that that's a big piece of what people get out of the experience. And I'd be curious to hear how this works with runners, is it, it becomes this, like, you're going, you know, it's like you're trying to measure the weight of something, <laughs> the weight of yourself, your centeredness. And by balancing on this edge, you can sense it really finely, really acutely, really sensitively. And then you can say like, oh, yeah, this is not the day or this is the day. And that's what gives me humility is that I, I, I have to bring humility to that moment because if I bring arrogance to that moment, I'll kill myself. So you have to have humility. And the, that humility is going to carry back into the rest of your life. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's, that's such a, that was a really profound thing to hear. Um, I'm just kind of absorbing that. Well, I think that is really, and I'm not saying that trail running doesn't have its risk, but I do think that that's a big difference between the two sports is that for us, the, the difference is like, I'm probably not going to die. Like, yes, you could, but when we go out on a trail run, you're probably not going to die. And so in many ways, I think it's almost harder to make that decision i think it's easier to just say oh you know it's today's not the day we're not going to do it go in grab a cup of hot chocolate and go on and i think go ahead see well i think i think the trick is that you have to decide that 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 for me it was like i actually remember the moment because it happened this year where i realized I, well, it happened last year and then it really like self-affirmed this year was that there was a moment I was running the um, Pinhoti Trail, which um, is 350 miles. I was trying to set a new FKT and I was in really deep pain. I mean, my shins were killing me. I was so tired. You know, I've been running for over 200 miles and I, my desire to succeed and to fulfill who I am was so strong that it did not matter how much pain I was in. It did not matter how tired I was. And there was like this switch, like flip where I went from not even being able to like screaming in pain, getting shoes put on my feet to running. And it, it's like mountaineering, I think is a much more acute moment in many ways where it's like, I would will die if I don't make this move or, you know, make this good decision. 
Whereas trail running, it's more like, here's the moment where I go from, you know, (laughs) almost saving yourself or kind of being like, oh, well, you know, everyone has DNFs, everyone has things to, it's almost like fulfilling to me, it's like fulfilling what I might be, might be capable of. Um, And it took realizing that I was tired of sabotaging myself and tired of letting go, letting go into that moment or like letting that moment win that I wanted to take that. But it is deep humility where it's like, you have to, I was so bare in that moment. And so like everything was taken away from me and it's so raw um, to be able to make the decision to keep going. And I think that that's kind of an interesting difference where it's like, I'm not going to die, but also it almost feels like it is life or death in that moment to me because it's like becoming who I'm supposed to be. Sorry, that was a long story, but. (laughs) No, don't apologize. That was amazing. And I think it's true, but I would say let's not overblow the risk of mountaineering. Not every death not every decision is life and death. A lot of them are just like, oh, I fall down and hurt my ankle real bad. But I would argue that the risk to runners is far worse. It's social humiliation. Oh, she DNF'd? Man, didn't she win that race? That's like, for, for me, that if I was on an expedition and I didn't go climbing, I just didn't talk to anybody when I went home. Like nobody knew, like nobody had any idea what happened or what didn't happen, only me. And and so that risk, I think, for especially known runners or runners trying to build, you know, a career is immense. And that pressure is immense. And that risk is huge. Yeah, and especially because if you do push through something, you do risk damaging your ability to run in the future, right? So you have to sort of in that situation weigh, well, is this going to be worth it long-term or in the next three months? Is is this finish line worth not being able to do this sport in the near future or potentially long-term? And sometimes, you know, personal achievement that drive for that is more powerful than the need to preserve our bodies. And, and sometimes it's not. So I'd be curious, Alexa, how and do in psychology is like differentiate social risk versus like physical risk, I guess. Yeah. Well, so in psychology, we have this innate need to socially thrive because um, in the beginning of time, you know, if you didn't fit into the the social community around you, you didn't have the resources or you could be killed, right? So we have this innate uh, thing inside of us that says that we need to socially conform. So that pressure is extreme. And so it's... Um, social risk sort of can drive us also in that achievement, right? It's it's similar to that physical risk. It's a a very, it's also risk-taking, right? But it's just looking at the risk-taking in a different way. It's 
conforming to the social norms and taking a risk of like, hey, am I going to ruin my reputation? Are people going to be talking about me? Are people going to be saying I'm a horrible athlete? Whatever that may be to you, that is a social risk taking for that person. And so some people may experience risk taking stronger in that social aspect, and some might experience it more in the physical aspect. But either way, to that person, it presents a danger and a fear to them, right? So no matter what that risk is, is valid to that person. And I think engaging in any of these forms of risk helps people to develop a high pain tolerance, for lack of a better word, a, a high risk tolerance, a high tolerance for discomfort. And, you know, I think that you touched on it already, Elisa, but this is a double-edged sword. There's on one hand, you can achieve great things, but on the other hand, you know, you actually both touched on it. You could damage yourself and you could not be able to run in the future. I know climbers who are metabolically and medically completely messed up because they starve themselves for so long to stay light. And various other such stories exist within climbing. And, you know, yes, they had extreme self-control to live on a handful of potatoes every day for a number of years but they ultimately damage their bodies that now don't function. So you've got to be a little careful with this, this ability that we develop, that it is, you know, you, you can use this for self-control, but you can also use it to override the pain of being out of alignment in some way, whether that's mentally or physically. Yeah. And, and- Sorry, I'm like going off on tangents, but this came to mind is that how does being able to manage risk or or even being drawn to risk? Because I think if we anecdotally look at the people who are pursuing kind of mountaineering or the extremes of sports, we often think of them as almost outsiders or kind of misfits in a way i mean there's almost pride in being that way and do you think that there's an element of personality type that also causes or can cause a um disjointedness with society and like relating to other people because i find sometimes when i come back from a really hard race or I feel like I've had this experience, I have a hard time relating to other people where it's like, I don't understand how to come back (laughs) or like be a part. And so I'd just be curious, like, is that something that you inherently have maybe if you have this personality trait or is that a, a like nature versus nurture kind of thing? Well, it's both. Like we definitely have those personality traits, right? And that's what makes us who we are and it puts us in the situations However, people don't necessarily that have those personality traits pursue the things that we do, right? So, and that would be on the nurture side of things. So, but yes, uh, we have different personality types that sort of drive us to do these sports. And that would be um, extroversion to some extent, uh, neuroticism, risk-taking, adventure-seeking, All of those things are personality traits that are really common in the extreme sports world that aren't as common in the other athletic endeavors or uh, non-athletes out there. 
So that's what sort of separates us psychologically, but then it's also how we use those out in the field, right? So people could have that personality trait and they could utilize it for, I don't know, some other thing that's not adventure seeking and that could fulfill that personality need. Um, we just choose to do it in the mountains and that's how we uh, deal with our personality. I remember it dawning on me when I was in my mid twenties that basically the narrative that all the men, mostly men and a few women had around their lives was that something along the lines of, if I hadn't found climbing, I would have been a drug dealer. I would have been a criminal. I would have been in a gang. I would have, you know, and I was kind of looking at, at one point, I kind of looked around like, wait, all these people are coming from these really fringe. And I felt like I just kind of came from the, like a quote unquote normal middle class upbringing. And I was like, wow, this is really a fringe community. I had that. And then I've, I've talked to different people. Like you talk to Yvonne Chouinard or, you know, Royal Robbins when he was alive. And you talk about the characters who are around climbing even longer ago, like in the fifties. I mean, these, these people were basically, we would call them homeless people now. Like we would call them, you know, misfits. They would, they would be, you know, yes, they were climbing and they were achieving, but like to the outside, like, and to the rest of the world, I mean, they were, they were kind of no good, you know, losers, you know, I mean, you know, you talk to Yvonne Chouinard, I mean, he used to live, he spent a summer living in a trash incinerator that he cleaned out. He spent another summer living off of dented cans of cat food that he bought at the damaged canned goods store. Like these are the, this is a guy who has achieved incredible things in his lifetime, but this is who he was. Like, you know, they didn't, he didn't have money for a car. He was hitchhiking and back to California and got thrown in jail, spent nights in jail. Like, like these are, these are the people that are engaging in, in these behaviors. These are also the same people that are building a company like Patagonia. So I think that there's, a, I think that there's a connection, honestly, between these behaviors in, in climbing. And I think there's a, an entrepreneurial side too. Yeah, I think it's like an extremism in like everything that we do. You know, we take everything to like that top level because we're always trying to achieve that personal achievement. That's our ultimate goal. And entrepreneurship does that for us. And so do mountains, right? So in both ways, we're achieving personally there. And that's what is our driving force. Yeah, I spent some time guiding in the Tetons and I was guiding there one summer, I think it was the summer of 2000 or 2001. And one of these characters that was working for Exxon Mountain Guides at the time was a, a climber named Chuck Pratt. And Chuck was one of the, you know, there's Pratt crack. I mean, he did all kinds of incredible free climbing feats, you know, back in, in the fifties that are still considered hard routes today. And he, he would teach the basic climbing courses. He would teach people how to tie into the knot, how to tie into the rope with figure eight and basically belay and the very basic thing. And he used to, to entertain himself. He had these funny little quizzes that he would make up for people. And I remember working with him one day and I would 
always get a kick out of his questions. And one day he said, which of the four first ascensionists of the North American wall is not a millionaire today? And I mean, these people just started climbing that morning. Like they have no idea what any of these words mean, right? But like I, I do, like I'm doing it in my head, like, okay, the, you know, North American wall, first ascent. Okay, that was Yvonne Chouinard, Royal Robbins, uh, Tom Frost, Chuck Pratt. Well, obviously it's Chuck Pratt. He's the only one that's not a millionaire today. That's insane. <laughs> that, that I think is, uh, is something about these personalities too, that is, they can be, they can when channeled correctly be, be successful too and not that that is predetermined but i think this sort of tolerance for pain discomfort hard work <laughs> these are the same things that make people successful in lots of different ways lots of different walks of life so yeah absolutely interesting well i think that we should switch a little bit of gears and go along to Risk's good old friend, Fear, uh, and talk about fear for a little bit. Um, but I guess, Alex, I'd love to hear, like, what is fear? And how do we differentiate fear we should listen to versus fear that we should rationalize? As we just heard, Steve was saying that there's sometimes where he took the lead and it went great, and there were some times that you backed off. And, you know, I'd love to hear more of the science behind um, fear itself. Yeah. So fear is um, a completely natural response to a perceived threat, right? So when we experience fear, um, that emotion triggers the sympathetic nervous system, which releases hormones of norepinephrine and epinephrine. And those sort of put our body into a fight or flight response. So that's what we experience with, you know, sweaty palms, um, you know, those sort of typical fear responses. Um, a lot can happen when we experience fear. We can freeze up. We're more likely to get ourselves hurt or in dangerous situations. We can also make rash decisions. Fear can be limiting for a lot of athletes. Fear stops them from starting or going past a certain point, especially if they experience a catastrophic or traumatic event. It can be hard to come back from that or even just like an injury. So to push past that fear and determining whether we should or not, that's really up to that individual situation, right? We can't sort of determine, well, once we hit this sort of fear response, that's when we need to stop and, and back out, right? It's going to be taking the time to, one, get used to fear, deal with the fear, and look at it rationally or as rationally as we can in the situation and say, hey, is this going to be something that's going to be detrimental in the future or is it not? Like, that's how we're going to rationalize it, right? So is this thing that I'm experiencing catastrophic or is it not catastrophic? Because no matter what, our body is going to experience that fear response because our, our hormones are being triggered, right? So how do we use that fear and how do we determine whether it's, it's life-threatening or not or potentially body damaging? And that's going to be sort of assessing the situation and going from there. When I was teaching basic mountaineering courses back in the 90s, we used to sum it up by telling people there are three steps in the process of evaluating risk. First of all, what is the chance that I'm going to fall? Second, what is the consequence of me falling? And third, how honestly did I answer questions one and two? 
And I think that that simple three-step kind of mnemonic or, or memory trick kind of can be applied to a, a huge range of situations to try to understand if the fear is something that you should rationalize, whether rationalize away, like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to fall. So even though it's death, if I do fall, I'm not going to fall. And so I can cross here. Or, yeah, and I think that one of the, the big thing. Yeah, sorry. one of the big things. No, sorry, is staying calm in that moment, right? Learning to control that fear is one of the biggest aspects of that. Because if we have this experience of fear and we cannot control it, it can put us in a very dangerous situation. So, like I said, you could freeze up. You could be um, just putting yourself in a really bad situation. So, using the fear to sort of determine the situation is going to be really important in calming down, using breathing, assessing the situation. Is this a moment where I'm just really scared and I can get past it? Or is this a moment where it's like, I'm really scared because this is a real perceived threat to my well-being? I've written and talked about this a lot in the past, but I did quite a bit of uh, meditation and and meditation courses and meditation practice when I was climbing actively. And that did two things that I think helped with the, what you bring up, Alexa. One is a key lesson of meditation is the there are three layers to a moment. As it was explained to me, there's the the initial experience, there's your awareness of the experience. And then there's a third one, which is your story about the experience that comes later. But as it pertains to what we're talking about, there's this meditation allowed me to stretch that moment in time out, the, the interval between the experience and the awareness of the experience and essentially slow that down is what how my experience of it was. And simultaneously, like the, the mechanism I would actually use was breath and like breathe into that moment to sort of stretch it out. And it would be a big belly inhale, exhale, sometimes multiples. And I would really like it's, it's, it's very much like a, the same process when you're been sitting in meditation for a long time and you've been through like all kinds of physical discomfort and your legs are numb and like all of those things and then somehow like something happens and you just feel like rooted and grounded and powerful and you know you're having this kind of experience and and that's the kind of experience i was essentially channeling in those moments and it's this whole experience of stretching time of slowing time of breathing into it of creating a creating um a space where i can make a decision where i can choose my reaction rather than have my reaction be chosen for me like oh i'm scared this is happening my foot is slipped my gear is bad i think this slope might avalanche what is my next step what am i going to do now and choosing that, not just like reacting. Yeah, absolutely. And breathing, 
helps us to calm down that sympathetic nervous system, which is what controls that hormone response and that fear response. So breathing is really important in those situations and slowing down and assessing what's going on. My climbing partners used to actually kind of make fun of me for that. They said, oh, we can tell when it gets hard up there because we can hear you breathing from down here. Well, you were doing it right, though. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I was also the one leading the hard pitches. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was doing it right. So I guess one last thing I'll touch on with this um, and then maybe a little bit about doubt and then wrap it up. But uh, people talk a lot about like that gut feeling where it's like you think something's going to happen or um like, oh, I listened to my gut and that was the right call, or maybe it wasn't. But I'd be curious if there is a psychological component of what that gut feeling is. And Steve, like first to Alexa and then to Steve, like when's been a moment where you listened to your gut and it was correct? And maybe a moment where you're like, oh, I should have gone. Like that was silly. So, so I would call it, yeah, definitely it's intuition and, and that's your body is, is perceiving a threat that you're not necessarily aware of. Right. And so there's a body's response to our environment and we don't always know why we have that fear response, but that's sort of what that intuition is. It's our body's experiencing a fear response for a reason. We're not sure why our body knows why, but we don't know why. Right. So that is why we experience that sort of gut feeling and that's our intuition telling us hey something isn't something isn't right right now yeah i concur and i i would say that it and actually this falls into the category of the third layer of the experience which is the story you're telling yourself and i don't mean to say that you can control the story or change the story your experience of this intuition is the story and in that sense i mean i mean this in the sense that you the story every story has a context and this the context of this story of the layer of experience of the moment which in this case is intuition is the context of what you're going to do. Are you feeling this and you're about to launch onto a big dangerous climb? Are you feeling this and you're about it's to run a race? Are, are you going to go skiing and the avalanche conditions are a little sketchy? Like, and, and it sort of goes back to those three questions. What are the chances of something happening? What, are the consequences and how honestly did I answer those? And on, often I think intuition is your signal that something is wrong on number three, that you're maybe not listening to and not telling yourself the truth because something is out of alignment. And this is where I think that I just see so many parallels between you know, meditation practice and the sports, mountain sports that we practice where, you know, you are, your job is to be present and to understand, you know, and to experience as much of what, what is in front of you and around you and your, what you're in, the moment you're in, climbing, running, sleeping as you can. And that's basically all that, you know, meditation taught, 
teaches us to do. I think that's wise words. So going off of that, the last thing I want to um, kind of touch on is taking this, and I think that oftentimes fear is spurred by doubt. And so how does an athlete deal with doubt? And with doubt, there's kind of two parts, I feel like, that there's doubt that comes from perhaps improper training where, you know, you really shouldn't be out there because you maybe just aren't ready yet or haven't put in the work. Um, And then I think probably the more common one is athletes dealing with a lack of self-efficacy where they're doubting themselves because there is a lack of confidence or almost a fear of uh, well, a big fear of failure. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on doubt and then just kind of maybe how do we deal with that? So doubt is completely natural. And in fact, some studies have shown that it is beneficial for perfor- performance because it forces the athlete to have this perceived need to try harder. And so that's that can be a performance boosting aspect of doubt. However, having self-confidence is more beneficial to performance because the athlete feels confident in what they are doing. So doubt can go either way, but it is a totally normal and completely natural thing to be feeling. Uh, Again, like it would be just like with fear. I think doubt is one of those emotions and feelings that we have that would be sort of odd to not feel before we go into a performance, right? So there's a few really good ways that athlete can deal with doubt. And one of my favorite ways is to like, we, we have these, these things that we say in our head, like these negative thoughts when we're dealing with doubt. And the best way to deal with that is to just put a full stop on it and literally tell ourselves when we're having that thought, like, Oh, I can't do this climb. I can't continue stop. And then say something positive. Right. So, so yes, this looks really hard, but I've done this. I've trained for this reframing it in a positive way or like I'm not trained enough to do this. Stop. I remember when I did my last training run or my last training climb, I'm completely ready for this. So it's stopping those negative thoughts and putting a positive affirmation in place of it. That's going to be beneficial when dealing with doubt. Yeah. I think that, you know, the moment of doubt on a climb is literally like the most precious moment of the whole experience. You know, when you're, and, and I, I tie this back to uphill athlete and what uphill athletes do. And when we are uphill athletes in a sense that it's at that moment of doubt when, and it's also at that moment of realization that we're going to overcome it. And Alexa, you just gave us the tools to help us overcome it, but people need to know that that's completely normal and everybody has that. And if you can, my, my mechanism for that is to do something that slows the time down enough that I make the decision to continue, whatever that is. Like there are sometimes hundreds of those moments, you know, little ones, but there's almost always one big one where it's really just totally hanging in the balance and you know you've this is to me 
one of the lessons I learned when I was in my 20s, I had the great luck and honor to climb with almost exclusively climbing partners who were a lot older than I was. They're all at least one generation older than I was. And this is something that I noticed that they did is when we got to that moment of doubt, they would stop and address the problem. So in climbing, it was often like, okay, let's get out the stove. Let's brew up. <laughs> and at first you're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, we're going to make, we're going to drink tea. You got to be kidding me. Like everything's, everything's going wrong. It's like, no, let's slow it down. Let's make, we're dehydrated. We haven't eaten. We, you know, we, you know, it's, it's going to get dark anyway. We have headlamps, you know, let's collect ourselves. Let's slow it down. And then we're going to make a decision. And that's how the, that's how the good decisions were made. You're just, you just completely, you choose your response. And this is so important in so many ways of life too, in so many areas of life where you just need to create a little space so you can choose consciously and, and wisely, hopefully a, the right response. And, you know, that's what, that's what overcoming doubt is about is also trusting and knowing that gives you self-confidence, self-efficacy when you know that when whatever happens goes wrong, that you're going to be able to make the right decision because that's what you do. I think for me, honestly, it's like also uh, becomes, this is, I've noticed in my, I mean, this is speaking as a 52-year-old, uh, but there was a period in my life where like, I loved that so much. I would go out of my way to create it subconsciously <laughs> in all, in all ways of my life. Cause I thrived in that kind of crisis. So I wanted to have a crisis all the time. <laughs> and, and now I realize, okay, yeah, I can leverage my strength in crises. I'm good at managing crises, but I don't want to be in crisis all the time. And I don't want those around me to be in crisis all the time. <laughs> so then, you know, you, you learn to again, make a conscious choice. And this is, this is just to say that that it's it's not like a straight line from beginning to end right this is the path of life and it's crooked and winding and you make you compensate overcompensate you backtrack you reconsider <laughs> you do things differently and uh yeah yeah and it all sort of ties together right doubt ties into fear fear ties into risk-taking and all of it ties into inevitably our need to achieve and to have that self-discovery and that personal achievement and affirmation in our life. And I say that that achievement isn't achievement for anyone. Again, it's just us showing up as who we are. And before the achievement, people didn't see us for that because we hadn't done it. You know, I was no different the day before I climbed Nanga Parva than I was the day after. But the day after, people saw me completely differently. It's a funny sensation. I, yeah, I've been there a couple of times where you're like, now everyone sees me different. Like, I bet I'm the same person. I just, I'm colder, like lost some weight <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but everyone sees you differently. It's a very strange thing. Well, there's a bit um, important difference between like who knew who you know you are and who people other people think you are, and it's part of the process of not of realizing that it doesn't matter what other people think you are. You're just going to show up as you show up and be who you are, and you have agency and power and strength 
and be and resilience and you will manifest those things and you know probably change the world for the better if you do it yeah well with that also alexa that was a beautiful wrap-up of connecting all of the pieces so thank you thanks for that um i guess any last things you'd like to touch on um in this podcast i think that just knowing that mental training is like we sort of said in the beginning, just as important as that physical aspect. So reiterating the fact that athletes really need to spend the time focusing on those mental skills uh, to help them overcome obstacles and also just to overall improve their performance. So it's not only just dealing with fear and risk-taking, but also just being the best athlete that we can be through not only our physical abilities, but through our mental abilities as well. And I would add that the way you do that is by training physically, because the physical journey is what takes you on the mental journey. You can't have the mental journey on the couch. You have to, you have to go out and you have to strive and you have to work, you have to train, you have to climb, you have to run. That's what takes you on the mental journey. Your body takes you there. And so, you know, this is so core to uphill athlete and what we all do in all our sports, whether they're snow sports or rock climbing or alpinism or ultra running, short distance, it doesn't matter, like adventure racing. Like it's, these are all just pretexts for going on a mental journey and coming back as someone different and someone transformed. These are, these are, I think that we should be proud as a community that we are undertaking bold and brave and transformational journeys as in our lives. Like we are making our lives, we're building our lives around these kinds of heroic journeys. And that's really something cool. And I think we should really all be proud of that. Absolutely. Um, Thank you both so much. This has been so much fun to dig into this. And I'm sure we will have many more episodes um, touching on mental coaching and um the mental component of um sports and so look out for that i guess so thank you for listening to the uphill athlete podcast it really helps us if you rate review and subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms um you can also check out our training plans coaching um, and we have a couple of training groups starting up in January. You can see all of that at uphillathlete.com. Once again, I just wanted to say thank you, Alexa, for your work as a coach at Uphill Athlete, your writing, and for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. It's not just one, but a community. Together, we are Uphill Athlete. Today's Uphill Athlete podcast was produced by Alyssa Clark. Our mixing engineer is Tim McLean, and our theme song was written and produced by Chase Clark. We'd love to hear from you, so write to us at coach at uphillathlete.com. I'm your host, Steve House. Go simply, climb, ski, and run well. Thank you for listening.